everybody, and welcome to Mom Cooks Fast and Slow. I'm Alex Sullivan, and I'm delighted to have you at my kitchen table. Today, I have Alec Prostock joining me, who is a cryptocurrency fund manager. As parents, I think we need to constantly be educating ourselves on technology and how it is shaping the world in which we are raising our kids. Alec and I discuss what exactly cryptocurrency is, the highs, lows, pros, and cons, and the outlook for the future of global finance in an ever-changing landscape of technology. It's a heavier topic, but I think it's an important one and found the conversation to be really informative. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Alec. Thanks so much for joining me on Mom Cooks Fast and Slow. Thank you for having me. I'm a, I'm really excited to have our conversation today. You run a cryptocurrency fund with a partner of yours. And while most of my podcasts are usually about family and community um, and things like that, I do think it's important for parents and moms to kind of understand the landscape of technology and our financial institutions and how kind of those things are shifting uh, beneath us, um, mostly to get ourselves an education, but also if our kids want to get into a space like cryptocurrency or in tech and AI and things like that, that we as parents have a general understanding of what those spaces look like and what we should be looking out for for our kids. So, um, That's kind of how I want to approach this topic today, Uh, but I thought a good way to start off would be for you to kind of give a brief outline of who you are and how you found yourself in the cryptocurrency space and then a bit about the fund that you run. Um, So I started about 10 years ago in risk management at JP Morgan, and then I moved to a private physical commodity trading shop where I've kind of been involved in trading my whole career. Um, And then... 2017, um, I ended up meeting an old family friend who was super into crypto. And we actually started working together on an ARB between the US and Hong Kong of Bitcoin. And basically Bitcoin in the US was 40% lower and you basically just buy it here and then you uh, transfer it to a Hong Kong exchange and sell it there. It's kind of the same way Sam Bakeman free got his start. Um, in the crypto space, but hopefully I'm not as bad as him. Um, (laughs) but, uh, no, so we started that, but the issue with the Hong Kong exchange, you actually had to have a Hong Kong citizenship. And so his freshman, uh, freshman, um, roommate, actually, he was the one that was able to get, uh, he, he was from Hong Kong. And so we just basically started trading that ARP. And so because it was so volatile, and I enjoyed the trading space, you know, I just started to learn more and more about it. And as I did, I just kind of saw how there's such a future in this space and how it's going to change the whole landscape of, I think, how we do everything in 10 years. And the fund that you run now, can you share what that's called? Oh, yeah. So it's Hecla, Hecla Partners. And I basically was in Iceland um, when we were first talking about starting the fund. And that's the most active volcano in the the world. So that's why its name is Hecla. Um, And so we just, we decided, hey, there's a lot of people like yourself who are crypto curious, but have no idea to actually get involved and invest in it. Maybe they can invest in Bitcoin and Ethereum. But we had a lot of, uh, a lot of friends and family kind of reach out, hey, like, we want to be active in the space, but not just kind of the top five assets. We want to people to invest in all like 
the smaller ones where they're seeing all these people get rich. And so basically our idea was, hey, we can help you understand crypto, um, set up wallets for everyone as well as get you interested in the space um, and then actually get you into some of these assets that you'd have no idea how to get into them off the exchange. So let me back up here because I think a lot of people listening probably have no idea of half of the terms we're talking about. And I remember that was a huge part of when I started trading on uh, Wall Street as well. There's just a whole vocabulary that you need to learn and come up upon. So the biggest kind of words that I think we need to define are blockchain, Ethereum, Bitcoin. Those are kind of the three majors. And then there's a few others that I think kind of play into that. But I thought if we could start with those three first, um, just tell us like what they are, how they became what they are, and how they kind of fit together in this cryptocurrency world. Um, Blockchain is essentially a, a digital ledger that's maintained across computers and it's linking people or person A to person B. Um, and so it's just as simple as that. So you can see transactions happen and you basically know exactly what went from A to B and how computers are linking together or transactions. And is that on like a www.blockchain.com? Like where do you see these transactions take place? There's like actually a digital ledger that you can go and look at and that'll show, it'll have a long 24 number transaction code that shows hey, this transaction happened between person A and person B. Okay. And it's completely, and the whole idea is it being completely decentralized and the government cannot interfere. And that's like the whole, I think, idea and start of this whole blockchain Bitcoin space is decentralization and not basically having to rely on government or anyone else to do things. And this takes place on what we now call Web3. Yes. And the web three is just like the worldwide or the new worldwide web and it's decentralization and they just want more and more transactions in the space. And the whole idea of, of web three is that it incorporates blockchain token based economics and decentralization. They basically just want to allow people to have transactions uh, without government interference. And that's the whole idea of, I think, this whole entire community, this whole space, how can we do things better without people interfering with what we're doing? And so explain to me now how you go from blockchain to creating a Bitcoin. So a Bitcoin is basically created, it's a math problem. And if you solve the math problem using your computer, because it's a proof of work, you are rewarded with a token. And that token is a Bitcoin. And then that Bitcoin can be used as a currency to actually transact and buy and sell things now. And the whole idea is having this currency, uh, no one can control it again from like a government point of view. And this is different from, so a singular Bitcoin is different from when people buy stock in Bitcoin. Um, well, you can buy like 0. 0.00001 of a Bitcoin, but... If you buy it on an exchange, you don't actually own it because the exchange owns it and basically makes a pretty screen and pretends that you own it. 
Um, so you, you actually have to take it off the exchange and put it in your own wallet if you wanted to own it yourself. And how do you, would you take it off the exchange and put it in your own wallet? You transfer it um, through the blockchain by using a wallet that, say, Coinbase gives you a wallet and there's an address, and you actually send it to a different address that you have on your on your own. And you can protect that with like a cold wallet, which is basically a private storage of keys of, say, a USB drive. And it's just like, it'll give you nine words like Apple, banana, car, in order. And those words are stored on a actual physical device versus like in your computer where someone could go and hack you and then basically take all your money instantly Got and it. open up your wallet. Yeah. Okay. So when I think about blockchain and Bitcoin, um, cold wallets, things like that. From I come from a commodities background like yourself, and I try and put it into terms for myself in terms of either gold or oil. Um, when I think about it, I think, okay, we used to be on a gold bar system where the United States, for every dollar that it produced, there was gold backing it. And I think about Bitcoin as for every Bitcoin that's produced, there is mathematical equations on a blockchain that backs it. Is that the right way to think about that if I'm trying to compare it to something I understand? <laughs> so I, I think the biggest way like I kind of think about it in normal terms is Bitcoin is kind of like gold and you're basically mining it out of the ground. And instead of mining it, you're using a math problem. And when you actually solve the math problem, you get gold or Bitcoin. And so now you have this asset that can be used to trade different things like a commodity. And oil, or sorry, Ethereum is more like oil on the internet. It's an open source blockchain where people are allowed to put um, basically anything in, in the entire world. Applications, games, um, new types of trade, uh, really anything in the entire world, I think, can be created on Ethereum. And that's kind of the reason this space is so interesting. Uh, one person doesn't control it, and everyone is basically allowed to add to it, and you can actually see what's going on in the space. And so Ethereum is oil, and it just moved from proof of work to proof of stake. You can actually stake your coin, and every year, say you stake 100 coins, they'll give you four coins on a year, basically like a bank would for lending them money. And then you can go and use that money, which is Ether, to then transact as well on the internet. But all of the transactions that are now built, like all these games, all these apps, are using Ether to actually work. And you kind of need oil in the world, basically, hey, everything's made of oil, like our shirt, cups, you know, our kitchen utensils, things like that. And so basically the way that these games work is they use Ethereum processing power and that'll actually burn Ethereum. So it become, you know, there's less supply. And so it's more of like an oil commodity versus uh, Bitcoin is kind of more money and it's just used as a trade where Ethereum is kind of a whole blockchain space where people are actually trying to build on it in order to move forward in the world. So is, is Ethereum still considered a cryptocurrency? Yes, they it both is. are. Okay. 
Okay. It's just the way they're used. Is there, I guess the same way gold and oil are both commodities. They're just used in very different ways. Exactly. And I think because Bitcoin was first, it's a very old technology. And like Ethereum's great because people are creating better ways to use Ethereum and build on it. And there's Ethereum's like a layer one chain. Now they've created a whole layer two chain to try and make transactions cheaper so that it doesn't burn as much Ethereum. So sending Ethereum from address one to address two um, isn't 30 bucks like a Bitcoin transaction. And how do you quote unquote drill for Ether? So you basically stake it and there's processing power. And so there's like 120 million Ethereum right now in the world. And it's using computing processing power uh, to actually create more uh, Ethereum. But when you actually transact, you burn Ethereum. And so that right now, there's actually more Ethereum being burned because Ethereum's being used so much than is actually being created. And because they moved into a staking platform, you basically have to give your Ethereum to a validator or become a validator yourself. And you're validating a transaction on Ethereum blockchain to create more Ethereum. Okay, so who who's doing this? <laughs> People. That's like so that's the whole idea of this whole thing is everyone everyone who wants to enter the space can. There's no like but, hey. so like if tomorrow I'm like, you know what, I wanna drill for some Ethereum. Like I'm going to go on a website and hook my computer up to it and start trying to solve these math problems or so like what if like tomorrow someone was like i want to do this what where do they go what do they do so there's a few ways to become a validator is a lot harder right now because there's a huge line because they just move from basically mining to staking so they're basically hey i saw transaction a and B happen. And because I confirmed transaction A and B on the blockchain, I'm rewarded with an ether. Mm-hmm. And so that's like staking versus solving the math problem, which is mining. And so, so it's the oil producers and the oil refiners. Yes, exactly. And so because you are now, Hey, I'm, I have to go and become a validator. You actually have to own 32 Ethereum. And then you can start basically validating transactions on the blockchain by actually giving the blockchain your Ethereum to use. And it's basically using your Ethereum to view other Ethereum transactions and it rewards you with a new, you know, sliver of Ethereum for doing that and being part of the chain. And this is like based on the token economics that were created by Vitalik in 2015. That created this thing called Ethereum. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So realistically, not anyone could really do it. I mean, that's why we need access to people like you because it's becoming harder and harder to for it to actually just be a regular person owning these singular things. Exactly. And the exchanges now have made it super easy to stake because what they're doing is the same way a bank uses your money to go into a transaction. They'll basically take a piece of it for you lending them, you know, that you lend them $100, they go and make $10, but they're going to give you five and take five themselves. The exchanges are allowing you to, hey, I only have one Ethereum, so I, I don't need all 32. 
but instead of a 4% APY, maybe I make 3.5. And so they're giving you less and taking some themselves, but then they are becoming massive validators, which is kind of hurts the whole idea of decentralization. Because if one person has all the Ethereum, then you can basically create new rules and kind of do whatever you want if one person has, say, over 50% of Ethereum on the blockchain. Right. So so that kind of leads me to my next question is a lot of talk lately in the news is about regulation of cryptocurrency. Um, it's been in the works for a while, but I think the FTX, SBF thing really um, pushed it over the edge. Um, and I guess to... To give people a background about that, um, that may not be familiar with what happened with Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX. Basically, Sam Bankman-Fried was running um, a cryptocurrency exchange called FTX. Um, he launched it in 2019. One of his biggest investors was a guy named Chang Peng Zhao, who everyone calls CZ. Um, they pitched this idea of an exchange that had a token called FTT that people could trade on. Um, it became super uh, became super valued by the market. It was like $18 billion um, valued at one point in time. He was a guy that walked around pledging a bunch of money to a bunch of altruistic um, ideas and people of influence. And for that money and influence, he was awarded things um, in terms of regulational power for the future of cryptocurrency. And then it kind of came out that it looked like their books were looking a little suspect. Um, and the big investor, CZ, pulled out his FTT coin from the FTX exchange. Everything kind of went belly up. And we find out that they had a hedge fund arm that might have been using client funds to support the exchange or front-running the people on the exchange to pad the money for the hedge fund. I, it, it was a mess. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of what all these alleged kind of issues around SBF and FTX happened. Yeah, no, definitely. So so now we, we come to the point where we're like, okay, this needs to be regulated because there's a lot of people, normal people that you're talking about that wanted to get involved in the cryptocurrency space, liked the idea of government, you know, being, getting out of their hair and, you know, they can kind of be in control of their own destiny. And what happens is a grifter comes along and does the same thing that everyone was trying to avoid in the first place. So now people want regulation. Um, and People are talking about, do we regulate it as a commodity? Do we regulate it as a security? You know, where do you fall on the regulation of commodity versus security or no regulation at all? I mean, the kind of third argument to this is if we start regulating, then people are just going to start trading this stuff outside of the U.S. and then we lose a competitive edge in a new space that could be the future of, you know, finance. So where, where do you kind of fall on that argument? So I almost think that you have to... Uh, look at every token differently because if I create a token and I make it more like a stock IPO where I own 50% of the tokens and then I distribute 50% now you own a piece of this company, I can then go and kind of make decisions for this token that then it works more like a security versus say Vitalik basically created Ethereum and it's all open source and one person doesn't own a majority or really even 
uh, I don't think anyone owns, you know, 5% of Ethereum at this point. And because it's so decentralized, I think you have to look at that as a commodity because one person can't control it. And when one person can control and make decisions on these tokens, I think it does need some regulation because like SBF people make bad decisions, but when it's kind of open source and people are working together, it's like, it's going to figure itself out. And so if people want it, they will, will use it. If they don't, they don't. And it's not going to be, Hey, we're leading the way to try and do things this exact way. It's kind of like a free flowing model where you're going to test things to see if they work. And if they do, you're kind of going to go that way. And that's kind of what I think the commodity view is. It's like, Hey, this needs to be traded the same way are treated the same way as a commodity is you don't need the sec coming in and trying who are they even going to tell at ethereum like you can't do this so it's basically it's going and telling every individual person that they can't do it and they're trying to control something that is really uncontrollable and that's the whole idea of the space was decentralization in 2008 bitcoin was basically created because of the banking crisis and you know, all these banks had all these people's assets and people went broke because the banks uh, made poor decisions with their funds and they wanted a, sp a place to basically park value that wasn't controlled by other people. And so I would say most of these are now commodities, but if you just go and make a token, that's actually a company, but that you just use that instead of an actual like company to invest in it, you know, that probably should be treated more like a security. And that was what FTT was, right? It was basically more of a security than a... Exactly. Because he he controlled all the supply and that was basically, he was using that to get loans and giving it back to Alameda, his basically investment firm, and poking or plugging holes with fake dollars, essentially, and that he's kind of just creating out of thin air. And when you made a ton of bad bets, eventually, you know, you can't keep filling holes with something that's worthless and then all kind of went under quickly. Right. Okay. So to circle back to your fund specifically, do you, how do you guys approach, I mean, obviously you're not going to give us like an insider yeah. of your fund, but what is kind of your pitch of someone brings you $100,000 and says, you know, I want to invest it in cryptocurrency. Are you guys only looking at cryptocurrency like Ethereum and Bitcoin for the same reasons that we explained the downfalls of kind of the securities ones? Or are there some pros to those security type tokens that you guys also take into account? So you, this has been our first year. Actually, June 1st will be year one. So we've been in kind of a crazy environment and we were lucky that we were kind of able to stay on the sidelines for most of this because we have other friends and fund, fund founders who have just gotten destroyed by being in some of these bigger with, you know, the 80% uh, fall down in Bitcoin and Ethereum price. And so I say right now, um, we like to load into the bigger players just because it's um, kind of a bear market still, I would say. And I, I think it's going to be pretty choppy. And then 2025, once kind of people understand what the interest rates um, going to 5% and how that affected all these markets. I think in 2025, you'll kind of see all of this will unfold and you'll see a, a really bull market in the crypto space, just with all the growth and all the developers 
um, moving from the tech space actually into crypto. You know, really smart people are getting added to the space now. And as we kind of learn, hey, this really bear market that we were just in, it'll be choppy until the rates come down a little bit. But then I think you're going to see an explosion in the space with just institutional funds um, are starting to use it. You're going to see regulation from governments. And I think that's a big piece of it is once there's regulation, then you have all this institutional investments into the space. And I really think it's going to, you know, change the way that we do everything. I just went into the bank earlier today and I had to sit there for 30 minutes to just um, get a check because it wasn't going through um, in the ATM. And the fact that like we're still doing things like that is just kind of silly when I literally could sit on my phone and have a transaction go through in, you know, five seconds and not have someone else control where, where that's going. But us individually, um, we really like the bigger coins right now. And we're kind of looking for some smaller ones in the AI space because we think that's going to actually change everything. Um, and as many jobs as it's going to lose, I think it's going to create a lot of jobs going forward. And if you can basically be in front of it, um, people will pay you to do so. And so my partner, he is, he's younger, he's 25. He has a web three platform where he wants to become the Amazon of digital assets. And basically anything digital will be listed there. And he's basically taking small cuts of digital transactions. And because of this, he's really in the space of like, hey, I'm seeing all these new things that are being built. I'm talking to developers. He's a developer himself. And if there's a new project that comes online with 100x potential, that's where he's going to be, you know, a rock star and know where to put the money. And I, there's very few people out there that are having that exposure right now where I'm more of a macro, hey, the commodity commodity guy from a risk management, you know, older. So, hey, this thing's not going to blow up. And then he's more of a, hey, we're going to have some riskier assets that most people won't even know exist. And you get in by the time you do, you know, you've lost a lot of that 100x value that you're seeing um, over the last five years. And when people invest with you, they give you dollars and then you use those dollars to buy coins or like, is yeah, that, so we'll, yeah. So we'll just, you know, we have a Gemini, a Binance, a Coinbase accounts for our fund and we'll buy on there. Then we'll take off the exchange and then we'll either stake ourselves. If we think, you know, Ethereum is a great example. Hey, we'll have X amount of Ethereum. We'll stake it ourselves so we can get the rewards on it. And then we have it in an actual cold wallet so no one can, you know, use those funds or get access to those funds as well as like, there's been a lot of uh, scariness in the exchanges with everything that's happened. There's even rumors that CZ is kind of doing the same thing um, that Sam Bankman-Fried did with his BNB coin. The same, it's a big piece of his balance sheet. Um, and because of this, it's, it is a risky asset because if they blow up, you basically will lose your coin. So you kind of want to be the full owner of your coins, I think, right? versus letting someone else, you know, hold your coins and basically they can make bad bets and 
lose your money, you know, the same way a bank can, I guess, is is kind of the way. Right. There's just no FDIC insurance backing it. Once it's gone, it's gone. Exactly. And I mean, we're seeing a banking crisis right now with kind of some of these bad bets that do happen. And so it's just not worth it if you're bullish in the space um, with kind of all of the friction that's gone on in the last year. Gotcha. Okay. So kind of moving forward now to what I focus on myself is how is this, you know, going to change the landscape for our kids? I know you don't have kids, but when I think about, you know, what I need to teach my kids for the future, this is something that they need to be aware of. Um, and something that they either need to learn about and start, you know, the same way I open a bank account and have them save money. Like, is this something that, you know, we should be teaching our our kids to learn as like a financial tool? Um, And how would you kind of go about, you know, addressing that with parents that are raising children to be prepared for the future in a space, in a financial space that is very new? Um, I think you kind of want to get not only your kids, but your friend, you know, as much exposure as possible to these things. And I think there's a lot of the first step is I think computers, you know, that AI is going to push forward so many things like these kids are able to do their homework in AI. And then they basically just have to glance over and make sure it actually makes sense. And if this is just the beginning, we're going to be in a, a space where computers are actually talking to each other. And I think it's just having a general understanding of each individual piece from a like very baseline view and then kind of trying to grow and learn more. It's like, Hey, you need to know basic math before you can learn calculus. You kind of have to start with the basics and try and like, Hey, this is a space that's growing and it's not going away anytime soon. And because of all this AI technology and computing, it's only going to grow because there's so much technology out there that it's just hard to even grasp like what Apple and Meta and all these companies are doing behind the scenes. I was reading today, like Apple has 95 million credit cards through Apple pay, which would be bigger than JP Morgan if they were able to just convert them all to the Apple card and they'd be the biggest bank, you know, in the world overnight. And they're also coming out with basically what everyone's hated is the new, you know, Oculus, Apple's coming out with a $3,000 VR. And so our kids are your kids and just people screen time is just going up, up and up. And so they say it's going to be instead of 50% as it is today, it'll be like 80%. And if people are looking at their phones and they're basically in a digital world for 80% of the time, there's probably a good chance all these digital things are going to be valuable or have some sort of value in society. And I don't know if I could say, Hey, um, this one will be better than this one, but the, basically the smartest people in the world, you know, Google glasses, meta had the VR Oculus and now Apple, it's like, they know that this is moving that way and they're trying to get in front of it, but they're quietly doing it so that they basically can get paid first. And so your kids are going to be using all their toys And so you want them to be, you know, same way you want them to be good at a sport. You want them to be good at, you know, using a computer and learning about these things. Cause if not, it's going to be hard. It's like, say your kid's behind a mat, you know, that's a hard thing. You don't want them to be behind in this new technological space either. 
So I think it's just getting them as much exposure and, you know, trying to teach them um, these things I think is, is important because it's unfortunately the future. Yeah. I mean, I hate that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I hate everything you just said. No, <laughs> but I, you know, what I hope is that, I mean, I, my most, my biggest issue with technology is social media. I, I absolutely despise social media. I think it is the most evil, like terrible thing that our kids have access to. That being said, if we could use technology in an unbelievable way to grow their brains and what they know and, you know, stuff like that, I mean, that would be great, you know? Um, and so I hope companies like Google and Apple and places like that are are turning more in that direction. Like with the VR, like I would love my son to feel like he's on Mars and work towards helping like figure out how to build a sustainable garden or something in on Mars. Like that would be a great use of technology, not, you know, pretending he has like an online girlfriend. That's the last thing I want him yeah, to be doing. No, exactly. So, so, so that's like, you know, when I get really stressed out about the idea of this technology moving forward, I, I, I think about it from a social media perspective because I feel like that's what you and I kind of grew up with. But hopefully we're moving past that and we use it for things like getting out from the government's thumb or out from under the government's thumb or, you know, learning faster and quicker and better than we would originally have done without technology. So that's that's my hope. Um, okay. So last question and then I'll ask you my, my question that I ask at the end of every episode. But um, where do you see, just in the next five years, where do you see the crypto markets? I mean, I guess we kind of covered this with you think we're going to have a boom in 2025. Um, but in terms of um, the banks, like, do you think because you're the cryptocurrency is trying to take on the banks, do you think the banks are going to get involved in cryptocurrency? And what does that look like in the next five years? Um, I think they have to, right? I, I just... I think they're super scared of cryptocurrency because they know what's going to happen. Um, there's already companies out there that are trying to get loans that happen through crypto transactions. So there's actually transparency. So you don't have these regional banks that are blowing up because their balance sheet doesn't make sense. If we have a better way to do transactions and it's faster and it's cheaper, we are going to do that. It's like, why wouldn't you? And I think these banks are the way loan structures are going to start working is you know, these assets can basically be bought and sold instantly when loans go underwater and you basically, you know, have this automated transaction that happens versus decision makers that are trying to hide or make bad decisions because they may or may not have made a bad trade. You have a computer do it automatically. It's like, that's probably a better process. Unfortunately, when you have these like new technologies in this new space, I think you're going to have a lot of creation from games to um, basically digital banks, real estate, like car loans. And I don't know how the banks are going to get involved, but uh, I, I think they have to because they're going to become obsolete and lose a lot of money for these companies that are kind of forward thinking and trying to make you know the world more efficient. And that's really what it is. It's like, how what technology is the most efficient because that's what's going to provide long-term value in any space okay make yeah makes sense <laughs> um all right well the world is going to go crazy with technology and cryptocurrency but 
hopefully there will always be families supporting one another. So the question I end every episode with is what is your favorite family tradition and why? Um, my favorite favorite family tradition is probably uh, on my dad's side. Uh, he's from Hastings, Nebraska. And I've kind of lived in Dallas. I've lived in you know New York for five years and I'm moving back next month. And it's just so fast paced and you know, you're just kind of constantly doing things where when I go home to Nebraska and Hastings, it's like, I just have such a good time. You know, we go to his favorite pizza spot that he uh, grew up having um, in Lincoln and my, all 25 of us try and meet every other Thanksgiving and just, you know, we'll cook steaks with my uncle and drink a beer. Um, then we'll four or five of us will go to the Nebraska football game, even though they've been terrible for the last 15, 20 years. And it just like, it kind of stops the world and just makes you like appreciate like what you have in front of you versus all like kind of the other things. And it kind of, to put it towards our call, makes me step out of like this technology space that we've been in just kind of living life and not really worrying about anything else. It's kind of like the world stopping for me and just being with family for Thanksgiving. I love that. That gives me hope, Alex. That gives me hope. <laughs> no, it's well, it, it'll it will be good. I promise. It's all technology. Like you'll hear about the bad apples, but in reality, it allows you you know to talk to your grandma a lot more easier on Facetime and things like that. So there are also nice things that come come of it as well. Yes, you're right. Well, or and at the very least, it makes you appreciate the kind of mundane things a bit more than maybe we used to. So. Yeah. hundred (laughs) percent. Well, Alec, thank you so much for joining me and uh, giving me an education on all of this. I hope my questions weren't too basic, but I do think that a lot of people kind of have these basic questions that are listening along. So thank you for helping us. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Um, I had a great time, so we'll have to do it again. For sure. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Alec. Thank you. Bye. Bye.